getting to write jokes for a living is the best job <laughs> ever. It's awesome. Like I just love working on all these different writing things and like I can always do that. It just makes me happy. So that's like the career that you need to find for yourself if you're lucky enough to be able to do that. Welcome everybody. My name is Haresh Singhani. This is Conversations with Haresh. We'll be talking to people of varied backgrounds, covering various topics. I'm very excited to be able to share these with you. The goal is to increase curiosity and empathy amongst all of us to help us grow professionally and personally at all levels. And of course, we also want to make sure that this is fun. So thank you again, and we'll look forward to having you. Hi, Pallavi. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. You're down in sunny California. Well, yeah. we're in Seattle. Well, thanks. Thanks again for joining. So I wanted to, you know, give you an opportunity for our audience to get to know you and see what kind of exciting things you're working on and how you're combining professional, personal, etc. to create overall growth, happiness, whatever your goals may be. So if you won't mind, shall we start with a, a brief introduction of kind of, you know, your start in life and work and, and how you got to where you may be now? I was born in Texas. I grew up in Utah. My dad is a civil engineer. My brother's a biomedical engineer. I became a biomedical engineer. I went to Caltech for undergrad. I went to Carnegie Mellon for my master's. I worked at Thermo Fisher. And then I got kind of sick of doing wet lab work. And so I applied for and got accepted into a PhD program at USC. And around the same time, when I was in the Bay, like as I was applying, I was dating someone who was doing improv. And I had always like been a comedy nerd and had been listening to like comedy podcasts. And I knew which scenes like which comedians came out of. And I was dating someone who's doing improv. So I would go to a lot of improv shows and I got to know the improv community in the Bay Area. And it became like the first time that I thought that you could actually like do comedy because it wasn't really accessible to me before. It wasn't a career path or even a hobby that I thought I could participate in, despite really enjoying the content of comedy creators. So then I got it in my head that I wanted to do stand up. And the way that I started doing it was at this festival that my boyfriend at the time was in. I met all of these stand-up comedians, and so I asked them like where they did their first open mic, and I went and I performed the next day, and then I got to come back and talk to like really famous comedians that I knew and admired at another party that they were having. Then when I moved to LA, I was like, okay, you know, I'm out of this relationship. I'm starting my PhD. It's a fresh start. I have time to explore my own interests. So I'm going to go hard into comedy. And then I did. And then it kind of took over. And then after struggling for about a year and a half of trying to decide what I wanted to do with this new passion, I quit my PhD and I kind of dove into stand up. I ended up like tutoring for money a little bit. And then I got my writing job with Love It or Leave It, which is a podcast with Crooked Media. It's a comedy and politics podcast. Since then, I have been doing other projects to support. Well, for two years, I was just doing Love It or Leave It. Now I'm kind of like dipping my toes back in as a project admin on a medical device, op an open source medical device project. But I'm still writing for Love It or Leave It. I'm doing more stand up than ever. Yeah, I kind of have one foot in STEM and I do volunteer tutoring. I do like a bunch of other things that are STEM related, but I'm like fully into the entertainment world, like auditioning, writing. Well, right now there's a writer's strike, but um, ideally writing, doing stand up and everything. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm just kind of straddling both worlds a little bit, but I definitely like know what I want to do and the goals that I have a lot better now after being in, in the entertainment world. I think prior to it, I was very unfamiliar with like how it worked. And now I feel like I'm a part of that community. So yeah. If you started on this, the kind of the second journey that you've added to your first professional journey, right? So now you're straddling two fields. It hasn't been that long. It's only been about six and a half years. I guess it'll be seven this year in a few months. Yeah, it hasn't been that long. And like the first three of it was my PhD. And then the last few have been like through a pandemic. So there were, you know, during the lockdown and for a while after I wasn't performing. And last year I wasn't even performing that much either due to personal issues. So like this is the first year that I'm like really back after the pandemic. It's been kind of 
difficult to navigate during this time in my life. But I think part of the reason that I have been as successful as I have been is because I really did feel a passion for it and like dove right in. I think the feedback that I have gotten is that at least I'm not in the wrong field. <laughs> you know, like I've, I've gotten made enough strides. I think one of the things that really made me feel a lot better was, you know, getting the writing job on Love It or Leave It. That happened only nine months after I quit my PhD, which is not that long to get a job in usually the same field that you're in, <laughs> you know, after transitioning. <laughs> so having it be in a different field was really, it was a really great position. And it, it's something that I'm grateful for. And then also like getting feedback, submitting for like late night shows and stuff and the progress that I made there, that was really encouraging for me at a time where I was, I had just made this big decision. And so at the time I was unrepped, like I didn't have an agent and I was just submitting kind of guerrilla style to all of these shows. And I was not getting staff on the show, but like making it to the semifinals or making it to the finals or interviewing with the showrunners and the creators and the hosts of the show. So it gave me a feeling like I was in the right arena, even if I had just taken this big risk. I mean, that's actually a very important point because that's really the only thing you have when you start in a new domain or when you make a left turn is how you feel really, because you know, the data is still not going to support what you did because it's, you're, you're going off the pattern, right? Yeah, you need time to build. And looking back, I was like, wow, I really had nothing and just kind of moved into this field. At the time, I was like, oh, I booked this web series. I did this. But now you look back and you're like, that's like not enough to, to make this decision off of. I am so much, I think, happier doing what I'm doing now than like forcing myself to stifle parts of myself. Like I'd always been interested in a lot of different things. And I was always told that that was a problem rather than something that was positive or allowed you to be well-rounded. Like you need to focus, you need to have discipline, you need to succeed in one area. How much of that interest external pressure was from family or from expectations around, you know, what a successful career might look like for somebody? I think it was both family. It was also the group of friends that you're in when you're in STEM is that there are these like very successful focused people with PhDs in very niche areas. It's very ingrained in you both culturally as an Indian person, as an Indian American, and also just as a nerd, you know, to succeed in like a very specific area. And it's not to say that those nerds weren't well-rounded or weren't talented in other areas. It's just you have to exceed expectations in all of these things that you do. And it's kind of counterintuitive. It worked really well for me when I was in high school and had to fill up my resume and have all these extracurriculars. I was like having a ball just doing a million different things. And then you get to a certain point in your life and they're like, yeah, you're no longer allowed to have hobbies. You need to like sleep in lab and like focus on those things. And you're like, but this wasn't what I thought I was getting into. <laughs> and I don't know. I think that's something that during the pandemic, I like embraced that aspect of myself and just kind of went fully into the things that I wanted to do. And I'm like so much happier and I also think that there is a certain type of knowledge and expertise that comes from straddling a lot of different fields that people who dive into one specifically may not get. Of course. Of course. Neither of them are better or worse than the other. It's just like a different type of knowledge and integration of knowledge. Makes sense. And it's also the cross-stealing or cross-pollination of methods and madness and ideas, right? I happened to, when I was an undergrad, do a dual degree. One was in physics and one was in electrical engineering, which to people outside of STEM, that's a minor distinction. But if you're in STEM or you're in the discipline, they're very different. It was kind of funny because there were some techniques that the engineers had that made attacking certain problems very, very efficient because the engineering side of it, they weren't interested in learning all the whys. They're like, does it work? Does it work? Does it make money, make humanity better, right? As opposed to understanding the core issues or the what was going on at the physical law level, whereas the physicists or the scientists were like, it's more about understanding, not applying it, right? And, and so they would spend a lot more time doing things that engineers would do <laughs> very quickly. And sometimes it was the other way. And I completely agree all the other way also, which is that this is no substitute for somebody who chooses one domain and goes really, really deep. You know, they're going to contribute to their field and themselves in a different way. I just think it's very like the American dream and very like individualistic in a negative way to prioritize 
that type of segregation, both in terms of your career and in terms of your thinking. I'm not saying like the knowledge itself is bad or like wanting to do that is bad, but I think the fact that we prioritize it and kind of put it on this pedestal to be within a certain population, a certain demographic, a certain career, and just be focused on that and yourself. That's a very like individualistic thing. And I think we're reaping the results of that right now with how things are in the US and like how capitalistic things are. And one thing that you were talking about before we started recording was what I've learned and what surprised me. And there's a quote that I always come back to. Artists are the most dangerous group of people because they interact with every class of people. And I think after starting comedy, like that really surprised me because I was out of my nerd bubble. I was out of this socioeconomic class that I had been limited to for all of my life. And that really changes your perspective. And so I think the type of knowledge you get from extending beyond your area of expertise is not just in terms of technical knowledge or in terms of like how to succeed career-wise, but it's also a better understanding of people and the systems that we live in. And I think that's what it means when it's dangerous, right? Is that people don't want you to go beyond the groups that you're in and to get to know other people because you'll start to realize that the enemy is not other groups of people. It's how the system is run. So I think that's like the thing that surprised me the most is like now I have friends who are like unhoused and I have friends who came from like very different backgrounds and kind of gave me more empathy and exposed me to a lot of different things that I know my friends who kind of took that one path are not exposed to based on how I talk to them and, and the perspective that they have. Yeah, I was at a family gathering of one of the youngsters. Uh, there's a huge extended family I happen to have in Seattle from my mother's side. It's literally hundreds of people. You're familiar with the immigrant ant, uh, trail of ants, right? So one goes somewhere and then everybody follows. And so in our case, trailblazers happen to be one of my mother's siblings and his wife and their family. And they made it to Seattle in the 70s. And then ever since, more and more ants have been showing up, human ants. And so I was just looking around that group of people. And I'm kind of guilty or privileged of being in this STEM middle management or entrepreneur socioeconomic class or community. We were sitting there, one of the uncles and I were chatting, and we were talking about something like this, which is how few opportunities there are in developing empathy with people who are not like you in the current way our system is set up. So it happened that because there were a whole bunch of all the family members of virtually immigrants in that gathering, many of them had different skill sets and different backgrounds back home. Some of them were uneducated, they were illiterate, some of them were educated, business owners, some of them were professionals, and then they moved here at some point in their lives. And then they kind of, some of them are still having labor jobs, right? And some of them are having their professionals, people like me who've been here for decades, we're, you know, established professionals, if you want to call it that. And then, but we all kind of, the family was the reason we were in that room together or at that house. But if it wasn't for that, I was, like reflecting, how many plumber friends do I have? How many dishwasher friends do I have? Or do I even know? Other than like running into them in, in, a, in a, when I go get a coffee or something, and then it's very sterile interaction, right? But that's the thing is that you can make those sterile interactions warm. Like that's the thing that I've learned about is- But I have to be intentional about yes, it. Yes, you have to be intentional. You have to be willing to go out of your groups and your systems. Like that's something- I have a lot of friends who work with unhoused people and mutual aid groups here in LA, especially during the pandemic. Like for two years, they've been running soup kitchens and community fridges and serving breakfast, hot breakfast out of the park. So because of interacting with them, I have become more intentional. And like being in LA, there are a lot of unhoused people, but now I try to get to know the ones in my neighborhood as my neighbors, you know? And so you have to go out of your way and you have to think beyond kind of like how they want you to think, you know, it's also like booking comedy shows. Like there will be cis white guys who book comedy shows and they only book white guys. And then they get like one token somebody. And it's because those are the people in their friend groups. But if you want to put on like a good show, you don't want to have like the same perspective time after like comic after comic. So you do have to be intentional about booking. You do have to be intentional about like, who your friend groups are not to say that you should like tokenize people but you should like want to have different 
people around you, you know, the next time you go get a coffee, you can like talk to them and like, look at them as a person rather than like, you know, someone who's just part of you getting your coffee. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, someone more than an enabler, right? Enabler is in itself very valuable. But so one of the exercises I've, I've given myself and a few others, and maybe you can help me with this, is if you were to boil down an entire field to one sentence, right? So Mr. Feynman had a saying about science, which is if he could convey to the next set of humans who survived it, this massive disaster where all scientific knowledge was lost, he would say that one sentence knowledge of science would be everything is made of atoms. You might have heard or read an author called Neil Shubin, who wrote Your Inner Fish, which is a book I highly recommend. But basically he was, he was, he's a paleontologist or was, and he still is, but then he added another field. And then he was at a university, might've been Harvard. They lost their professor of anatomy to somewhere, to some other school. And so the Dean of Medicine asks Neil to teach that while he's like, what do I know about anatomy? I'm a paleontologist. And so it happened that he started teaching it. And he, of course, did a fantastic job as the Dean knew he would. But then he started teaching the kids, not just the parts of the human body, what were, but because he was a paleontologist, he started getting into how they came into being from an evolutionary biology perspective. And that gave everybody extra insights or much, much heightened insights into why you're susceptible to many, many diseases that you are. And it's because how the body has evolved. The long and short of it is, he had a one sentence <laughs> for biology, which is everything has parent. If you had to take all of civics or maybe humanities and you had to boil it down to one sentence that I would do, I would say humans are three-dimensional. Everybody is three-dimensional, not just you. So that means if you're a dishwasher, dancer, you're a comedian, or you're a technologist, rocket scientist, whatever you are, surgeon, everybody else is nuanced just as much as you. They're just as much valuable, right? And their perspective should be valuable as well as their life and their being overall. But the tricky part is oftentimes, right, is that we don't have a lot of time. And then we're living in these massive urban environments where you can't really take the time to acknowledge other humans that you run into in the course of a day, especially in a place like LA or Seattle or maybe Manhattan, those kinds of places, right? So you're constantly making these practical trade-offs. We can do better by being intentional about it still. Just to, I guess, get a little bit more details about what you're currently, I, I know you earlier you mentioned a couple of things you're focused on right now. They're both on the side of your original STEM projects or career, but as well as your you know work in show business and comedy. Are there projects that are taking up a lot of time and you're focused on and are there any goals you're working towards or milestones, big milestones coming up, either a new routine or some kind of new product solution research coming out on the STEM side, whatever? Yeah. So I am constantly doing stand-up. So I'm always like doing shows. I produce shows as well. There's a show at the comedy store that is coming up, but I basically am constantly working on new material. I also eventually want to get on TV with my standup, you know, like a lot of my friends have Comedy Central tapings and late night and things like that. And so that's a constant work or a piece of yourself that you're always working on. But almost every night I get to do standup. And so you're constantly working and perfecting your routine and trying to be a better performer. And so that's stuff that at the core of it, I'm a standup and a writer. And so my week is kind of like I do a bunch of stand-up at night during the day. I have my project admin role in terms of things coming up with that. We have like a webinar coming up. We have like a lot of things that we're excited about. It's the CARS project, C-A-R-S-S -S, at USC that I'm a part of. People want to look it up. It's a really interesting implantable, an open source implantable device project that's funded by the NIH. But yeah, so during the day, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm doing auditions. I'm writing my own projects doing things like this, like podcasts, or last week, my friend asked me to be in her documentary, different things come up, you're constantly like throwing everything you have <laughs> at the wall, you know, you're posting stuff on social media so that you can sell comedy tickets. So I think the way that people can support me best is by following me on social media and coming to my shows and supporting my stand up because that's where a lot of stand ups right now are kind of in this weird place where we have to be big on social media in order to sell tickets in order for people to book us. People are think it's like a superficial thing. But for a lot of us, it like makes or breaks our career. Some of the best stand ups I know, some of us hate social media or hate having to put our content out there because it's 
mean, you know, with editing a podcast, it's a lot of work. And now you're doing that on a daily basis with like all of these videos and you're just like a content machine in addition to videographer and, you know, dealing with audio and editing in addition to just like coming up with stand up. And that's not even all of your career. You have to like write and act and do everything else in order to survive. So I think that's like the tough part. So I think that's where people like sharing and supporting your social media content is where people can help. And it's even harder now that there's a writer's strike because they're fighting for better payment and better long-term employment for writers because there is that instability. So like we do have to do a million things, even if you're a writer now, you know, writing used to be the more stable thing. And then with streaming, people were undervalued. It feels like a rat race sometimes where you're like, I have like all these new projects, but Basically, if you're a fan and you're like all in on someone and whatever they make, that's like the best market for us to have because then you're just excited to absorb whatever content we have, whether it be live stand up or a podcast or if we're in something and that gets us booked more and gets us more longevity in terms of our careers. That's why like all of these people who are successful in a field or are like Nepo babies can be Renaissance people where they can do whatever art they want you know, because they have the audience for it. So that's like the goal is to be able to control what we put out there and our creativity rather than like having to like do it for money. You know what I mean? Like knowing that the money will come is like the ultimate goal is just being able to make whatever you want, put it out there. And that I think creates the best art. But it sounds like you might be a person of breadth and depth, uh, not just in terms of taking on certain challenges, but also you've probably thought about society and how to create a better version of it in your perspective. It's not like I have like this vision of like how everything should be and like, you know what I mean? It's just, I know that there is like a lot of suffering right now. And I know, for example, there are like certain causes that I have strong opinions on because I feel like I am around people who understand it better than I do. And like one of those causes, for example, that I always talk about and think about is unhoused people in LA are just suffering for no reason. And they do these like sweeps in LA where they like push them out of where they're living on the streets. And it just, you know, destroys their property. It causes them to have to start over. It's very expensive. It's mentally taxing when in the end they could just house them and there is space to do it. There is money to do it. They just won't do it because they're like pouring that money into like the police budgets and you know what I mean? So there are certain things that I'm like, well, there is a solution that has been proven to be a lower cost to the system overall for taxpayers, be the most humane thing to do in terms of like helping people just be very practical and economical thing to do in addition to being the most compassionate thing to do. I don't have like a vision of like, this is how everything should be. I just know that like, I believe like healthcare and housing and education should be a right afforded to everyone. And they can be, they can, it's just, we have the money to do it, you know, but it's just not happening. What was going through my mind as I started asking this question was, you mentioned that, and maybe it's generational, right? So the older generation or users of tech and everything in the world may think of social media as not as critical or as potentially important for success of entertainers or just producers of all kinds, right? Whether it's fiction, nonfiction, et cetera. But it is critical for all those producers to actually leverage social media successfully and have the other side, which are the consumers, respond and engage on social media so that those producers can continue to get, you know, bookings or get some royalties from the content, you know, whether it's ebooks or et cetera. But there's this push-pull, right? Which is how much of the content or how much of what producers produce should be for, so that they know they'll get engagement uh, from the users versus what they really want to say. Yeah. And so if somebody's having a vision about how to solve either all the problems, right, which you're saying you don't, right, <laughs> which most people don't, even if ones who may feel they do, they don't. But at least if there are a couple of three things, right, uh, whether it's housing or a few things that you, you might feel strongly about, right? So how do we really convince people or how do you propagate the message of whatever our vision may be without having to kind of contort it? So that we're like, oh, okay, now I have to propagate it in a way that I know is going to get engagement. And this comes up many, in many, many ways, right? They're like outrage creates engagement. So the social media platforms themselves put content out there that outrages people more. And they know that's what gets them to use the platform more, etc. But I think I'm probably belaboring it 
the question a little bit, but you get the idea. So how do you stay true to your vision while increasing engagement, adoption and, you know, audience? I think everybody has a different way of doing that. And you can really, you can kind of tell when people aren't. And I think like comedians have kind of like backstage conversations about it, you know? For example, for me during the pandemic, Twitter was a very like organic way for me to gain an audience because I just had to write jokes. And I love doing that. And I love engaging with current events. And I love talking about politics. And I love, you know, just like a lot of the things that get a lot of engagement on Twitter. And, you know, for stand up, I do have to make videos. And it's very irritating to have to like edit (laughs) videos every day. But it's also I'm trying to find a way to make it more sustainable and for me to learn from it. So like watching me in those videos is painful, but also being able to get feedback about my performance by watching it back is helpful to me as a stand-up. So I'm trying to like have a different attitude about it so that I get something out of it rather than just having to like be a content machine. So I'm trying to do it in a way where I don't compromise. Like for example, like people say that a lot of crowd work gets views right now. I naturally do a good amount of crowd work, but I also have jokes. But like the ones that I'm putting out are just my crowd work bits because I eventually want to release an album. And so I'm like saving a bunch of my jokes for that, my written joke. You know, I've always been a type of person to kind of like be in the moment on stage, or at least once I like found my voice a little bit more, you know, I'm not trying to overdo the crowd work or, you know, not write. I'm trying to like stay true to being a comedian and writing jokes and having an actual set. And then I just put the parts of my crowd work out on social media because that's the part that I'm not afraid to burn, you know, like that I'm not afraid for people to see. The strategy of like how much of yourself you're putting out there, because that's like another thing. Right now, I don't put my family out there. Like I used to put pictures of my parents and stuff on my Instagram. And then like I didn't want to keep doing that as my audience grew. And so I don't anymore so that I can have that for my private life. The people that I know in real life who aren't comedians or trying to be famous, like I won't put them on my social media. And that's something that's like kind of a line that grew a little bit thicker after I got a bigger audience. And I was like, okay, like I want to not expose them to the stuff that I'm exposed to because it's not part of their career, like what they're going for. So that's like another example of how I'm like, okay, this makes me feel a little bit more comfortable. The way you do it, it's the content. But the ideal thing is like you put the content out there that you like and you find your audience and like people like you and what you come up with. If it's interesting to you, it should probably be interesting somebody else it's a matter of connecting yeah and i've definitely seen like people i thought were like in it for the stand-up comedy get famous for not stand-up comedy and just like settle into that arena and not do comedy anymore and i'm like oh they just wanted to be famous like that's what they wanted they're doing it and that's fine but they're like not a stand-up you know what i mean and i'm a stand-up i love being on stage i love performing comedy you know so i have to always keep that in mind and remember that I'm not doing it to just get famous. I'm doing it to do stand-up. You might have known that early on, but oftentimes people don't know exactly where the journey's going to go, right? So we can't be too judgmental about where they end up. Yeah, it's fine if they if they just want to do what they're doing. Like they're doing it and that's amazing. But like for me, I know that if I'm not true to that, like this is what I quit my PhD for, you know what I mean? For that moment Uh on stage, (laughs) I had to know by the time I jumped in that that's what I was going for. Maybe on some lighter note, what's a really good joke you've heard in the last few days? I hate doing that on podcasts and stuff because it never is like true to the comic who tells the joke. I have a friend named Curtis Cook who's super, super funny. I always give him shit because like he just like comes up with these elaborate, very like detailed stories. Like more than half the time, they're like not true. I don't want to blow up his spot, but it's like so funny. But he came up with a (laughs) with a joke in which he has a six-year-old child he did it for the first time in front of me he was like yeah I have this joke and he was like I'm gonna think I think I'm gonna try it and then he fucking killed like on stage he did it for the first time at a festival show just I was just in Portland at Rip City Comedy Fest and it was so funny and it was about teaching his child like how to protect themselves like racial bullying at school and it's just like a story he wrote I'll send it to you afterwards I don't want to like first of all I can't because I can't tell this story tell it all but 
that's part of the voice of the com- of the comic. Yeah. Also, he like uses the N word in there, so I wouldn't be able to <laughs> to do that anyway. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just like they're like comics who come up with like all of like the styles of comedians are so different. And I like I know clowns. I know people who just like do one liner punchlines or set up punchline and I know people who tell like stories and I'm always like so jealous of other people's styles because I always think they're so brilliant but like your voice is your voice Curtis's voice is just like very distinctive and like he's so so funny okay I'll look forward to that so when you're writing or brainstorming jokes in your head do you find yourself let's assume everybody that's listening to this podcast wants to be a comedy writer okay do you have one or two suggestions on how to get started? Being a comedy writer is different than being a stand-up comedian. If you want to be a stand-up comedian, you go to open mics and you just keep going, keep trying different stuff, write jokes and stuff, but just get up as much as you can. And then for comedy writers, there's like a lot of different ways in. It's a similar thing though. You have to like start writing. So like whether it's through applying for positions, through writing packets, or if it's through writing your own pilots and spec scripts and features, like you have to start doing something somewhere you know makes sense makes sense i was also thinking for say some people who are just want to do it as a personal task to entertain themselves entertain their families and so for example i have a little bit of a ulterior motive here one time on road trips last winter i was taking one of my nephews skiing and so he's this full of energy pretty smart kid we had about two hours to kill so we started telling each other jokes and initially it was like the ones that we had heard from elsewhere but then because we're not like you or other professionals who hours and hours and hours or tens of hours of content <laughs> right in their head or at least we ran out. I don't know exactly how many minutes into the drive, but you're, we don't have that much content. So then I was like, Aiden, how about if we compose the jokes? We came up with a couple of jokes where it was like, hey, what did one stone say to the other stone, right? You rock, right? That's like a, so that's a 10 year old. It's probably even a five year old attempt at writing comedy, right? Or writing your own joke. But these are like extremely amateur, but kind of at the other end of professional comedy writer jokes or stand up comedian stories. I guess I'm wondering if there's like a framework or something that you or people could go through to say, okay, there are these categories of jokes or these categories of stories. Maybe it's length, maybe who are the characters and so on and so on, right? There's definitely like a lot of theory with like joke writing and how to formulate a joke and what makes stuff funny. And I think that's, you know, when you are with a group of comedians and they're talking about each other's bits, that's like what they get into of like, oh, you need to, you know, even with the cadence, like you should pause more here or like do this act out. But sometimes it's kind of like in the spark of the moment and you, you're not quite sure in a beautiful way, not in a lacking self-awareness way of like why a person is funny, like they're just who they are. And that's like really funny. You know, there are a lot of books and blogs breaking it down of this is how a good storyteller, you know, sets up their story in a comedic way. This is how a good setup punchline joke works. This is how, you know, every comedian develops their own voice and figures out their own style. And then like you kind of like step back later and you're like, oh, I kind of actually have this style and it can be categorized in this way sometimes, but sometimes I surprise myself and I do something else, you know? But yeah, there's like a lot of that breakdown. And it's really funny to see friends like comedian friends after a set when they're like helping each other with their bits because we we really get in writing mode and and even in writers rooms when you're figuring out like a a plot line or how characters interact it is like a puzzle piece that you're trying to like fit in to different places and you're trying to like set things up in a logical way with the perspective of an audience member like of someone viewing it in that way who doesn't know what's about to happen in thought I really love that about writing and writing stand-up comedy writing like for pilots and stuff and for writing stand-up that is kind of like the mathematical part of it is like you can put the puzzle pieces or like string things along in a certain way that makes sense and then once it fits in you're like oh that that's it of course I have to pause here or they have to add this subplot or whatever and so that's like the kind of aha moment that you have that I find really fun. I love that in like working with other writers. I'm in a writer's group every Monday with my friends and we like work on each other's pilots and features and whatever they're working on. You know, we pitch ideas and we pitch character backgrounds and it's really fun like putting it together and figuring it out as a group. That's like an aspect of collaboration 
even within stand-up comedy that people I think don't understand who are outside the community because they see it as like a lone wolf type thing. But there's a lot of collaboration in terms of helping each other go from mic to mic or show to show or whatever, just like hanging out in the green room. But there's also the collaboration of being like, oh, hey, I have a tag for your joke, you know, back and forth. So it's really fun to figure those things out. That's great. So there's definitely for people who are interested either to entertain their nieces and nephews or their families or friends, there's <laughs> there looks like there are a lot of resources to, there's so to, many, to lean on, right? There's so many. Sure, sure. There's like there are like really famous like writing books. There's really famous like joke books. Save the cat is like a specific style of setting up a plot line and it's also a book that talks about that stuff you know what I mean like like any field it's been like analyzed and overanalyzed you know yeah it makes sense I mean it's one of the most popular fields out there for consumption and for production I suppose so speaking of storytelling and the writers what's happening with the strike etc artificial intelligence has been in the news a lot we happened to have done a conference or a networking event last week at High Tech Advisors on artificial intelligence. Some of the usual suspects were on the panel from Amazon, Microsoft, and a couple of startups. We didn't talk specifically about writing, screenwriting, or comedy writing, etc., and how AI might be able to displace talent, or maybe AI can help improve the content, right? So usually whenever you have this leaps in technology, it can have one of two outcomes or both, which is you end up displacing the human workers that were doing that task, or you still keep those humans, but they produce a lot more or better products. So I'm curious, you must have probably had many conversations and thought about this to whatever extent you've been tracking this. Do you have any views or ideas on how this interplay between human talent and artificial intelligence might play out short-term, mid-term, long-term? Well, I think with any advancement in technology, a lot of times we create the technology and then worry about the ethics of it later. Scientists and engineers aren't policymakers. And I think there should be policymakers that understand the tech as they go. I think any tool or innovation we have should aid humanity and not harm it. The problem with AI is multifold. What it trains on is people's work. And so there's copyright and ownership associated with that. That is not, you know, those people aren't being given credit or their due. And then the idea of corporations using that to replace people so that they can cut more corners particularly in the field of art, which is supposed to be something that technology is supposed to free us up to do more of, to be able to express ourselves and our experience as human beings and how we view the world and our stories is somewhat sinister. You know, it's very sinister. Corporations, rather than giving living wages to people they've been profiting off of for decades, they said that we'd rather just replace you with AI and some scabs. I think that there's a lot of stuff that won't be captured by the technology. I think part of what makes art compelling is the humanity behind it and the artists behind it. I think that this is a problem that's not just in the artistic field. Like I was talking to professors who are confused about how to have their students write essays and, you know, take tests with these things available and they're trying to run like counter technology to detect when people are cheating with AI, that technology is punishing people who aren't actually cheating with AI, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's gotten really messy in a lot of different fields. Also heard about professors and scientists who aren't, you know, notoriously known for not being great with English and writing and communicating, using it to write grants and communicate better and have heard that it's a more positive experience in that way because it helps them like draft things and helps them figure out how to communicate better, which is an important part of being a scientist and an engineer. And if you don't have people on your side and you don't have people who are in positions of power and policymakers like allowing you to use that technology, then it sits on a shelf. So that seems good and useful, but simultaneously, yeah, you don't want people's work being used without credit. You don't want it to be a way for corporations to become more evil. <laughs> you don't want it to 
I think we're in this like weird nexus of how do we use this tech that we've created. And I think part of the issue is like, we need to have people who create this tech, understand the ethics of it as they go and put in like fail safe. And we also need policymakers to be a, a step ahead. And they're just like not literate in STEM enough. Like if you look at the conversations Congress has had with like Mark Zuckerberg, it's like, so sad, you know, like seeing how senators talk about finstas and like not understanding what anything is. There's just no literacy between the groups. The legal regulatory framework, they still haven't caught up to the current economy, which is basically an attention economy. It has nothing to do with pricing, whereas most of our antitrust, for example, framework is based on price competition. But in the attention economy, the end user pays zero. And that user or who would have in the past been the customer is a product. Now, I think our legal or political framework or political machinery is way, way behind. And I'm not sure if there's a fundamental solution to that problem, which is, I mean, it's almost a universal given that they'll always be behind. So then what do you do, right? <laughs> I mean, you have to push them. You have to enable them in some ways and encourage them and by people, you know, taking up leadership in some capacity. But AI is such a pervasive technology and capability or change, actually, really, because it goes well beyond just technology. But it's going to be such a huge change. It's going to affect all the fields, uh, not just art. I think, you know, that ties back to when we were talking about the attention economy, it does tie back to like intention and these economies are going to change, like our technology is going to change, what we value is going to change. But if the system values making sure that society, people in general are taken care of, then I feel like those technologies and those innovations should, you know, work within the confines of like being a boon to humanity, you know, rather than working against it. But people's intentions are not that way. And so how do you combat it? Our, our history as humans, right, is very good and bad, right? There's a mix. And so every time you have technology that gives people more power or more means or more efficiency or more productivity, some of the times it will be used for bad ends because that's what some of us do. And and maybe every one of us has some of those elements in us. Most of the times, the good elements kind of keep our the bad parts in us in check. But every time, you know, whether it's steam engines or gunpowder, which was used for, you know, killing people, but it's also was very instrumental in helping build railroads and roads and dams and stuff like that, right? And almost any automation or advance in technology was always a double-edged sword. There probably has never been one that was not uh, so this one very much will be like that. You have to innovate with the worst case scenario in mind and you have to regulate in that same way because you can't assume that that's like such a failure of systems is like assuming that the person in power is going to regulate themselves. Like that's what we found with all those like Trump loopholes, right? Like he was in power and then he did all these terrible things. And then we found out he could because nobody put any rules in place to say that he couldn't. That's what you have to account for is like the worst case scenario. And people just don't, they're always like, ah, we'll think about it later. And <laughs> it never worked out. Especially the, as you mentioned earlier, the way the system is set up, it creates this specialization and there's this, it's not my problem kind of thing yeah. that happens. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I come up with a new way to make a successful business, I go do it. But I don't necessarily have to think about the larger effects yeah. it has on society, right? And the, and the most marginalized groups of society, right? So it's not going to affect rich people. It's like the ramifications are like... Well, they'll defend themselves. Yeah. They can defend themselves. Right? Or they just don't have to worry about it because it, like rules don't apply to them. You know, like if you have money, rules don't... Like you play by a different set of... Law. That's why, like, you know, bail is even a thing. It's like poor people are stuck in jail because they don't have money. But if you're rich, you don't have to be, you know? This is a cash system. It's a cash-based system. So there aren't ramifications for people in those echelons of society. You've kind of chosen two not only very different fields to straddle. Mm -hmm. They're very demanding, right? Yeah. You can't show up in a highly talented tech or STEM team meeting 8 a.m. in the morning and not have your brain fully functioning. But if you had a comedy night the night before, you might not have caught enough sleep. Yeah. How do you balance the workloads? Well, but also in general, how do you balance life with 
such demanding fields that you're engaged in as well as whatever else you might be doing personally. And that specifically, I already have terrible sleep because I have sleep apnea. And so I kind of just gave up on feeling well rested. (laughs) So yeah, so I have like terrible sleep habits and it's like not the smartest thing. But lately I've been trying to find balance by like doing what I need to do in my careers and then trying to like connect with people and still support the relationships that are important to me in my life because the first few years of stand up, I wasn't and I had to deal with the outcomes of that of like turning around and finding that like some of my friends weren't my friends anymore, because I had been too focused on stand up, you know, it hurts, but it's also not good for my brain. You know, I suffer from like depression and anxiety, and I'm medicated for it. But you still need that like human element to connect with people. And I've noticed that. And it's unfortunate that I was incentivized to make those relationships more fruitful partially because of my productivity being impacted. Like that's how capitalist of a system we live in. I was like, ah, my brain is hurting and I can't work more. So I need to love my friends and family better. (laughs) Like that's like, that's like a messed up thing, but also like, obviously it brings me joy and happiness to connect with people. And I wouldn't be the type of performer that I am if it didn't. But yeah, so I try to like do as much as I can, but I also like definitely am getting older. I think post pandemic, a lot of people get more tired. And so I have my dogs at home that kind of like take me out of my head. I have my friends that I really care about and I have family. I have a nephew now. And so like I get to go visit him. And so things kind of your priorities kind of change as you get older. And also as you realize that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And once you feel stable in your ability to support yourself, which can change at any point in the system as we've talked about, but you know, as you feel more secure in your field, you feel the ability and the luxury to be able to invest more into those like friendships and things. And so I feel very lucky that I'm at a place in my life where I can have like two dogs and have friends come and stay over when they visit and like go visit my family. And so yeah, I'm very lucky in that I get to do that. I thrive off of having a bunch of different projects and like being busy, like I feel like not good when I don't have anything to do. So there are a lot of people in LA who are like just actors. And when they're not booking stuff and not working because you have to audition for a lot of things, there's like a lot of downtime and like they can take classes and stuff. But if they're not working on other projects, I feel like I would go crazy if I didn't have stand up. I can always do stand up if it's like open mics or shows like I can always focus on stand up or social media or like, you know, have something to do. And I love doing it, you know, like getting to write jokes for a living is the best job ever. It's awesome. Like I just love working on all these different writing things. And like, I can always do that. It just makes me happy. So that's like the career that you need to find for yourself. If you're lucky enough to be able to do that is something that you want to keep doing, you know, comedy, it energizes you. Yeah. Which means it's not a something you need to take a break away from. And I may be oversimplifying but it's almost like part of your me time. Yeah. The draining part so, is so, like the admin part where you have to like do all the of business course. side stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's something that I didn't account for during the pandemic. Like I had my social life. A lot of it's around comedy, laughing all the time, just that Got physical it. reaction. I get yep. through comedy performing is like a high that I get, you know, like I didn't have any of that during the pandemic. So I really had to like reckon with myself, but yeah, I love doing stand up. I love going out every night and doing it. Any workouts, physical aspects or spiritual or meditation prayers, any of that? Do you use any other techniques for well-being? I'm not like spiritual or religious, but yeah, I think like feeling grounded with my friends and family and my dogs, like I really love pets and going on our walks and stuff. I'm trying to focus on like exercise again, like I get in bouts of it where I don't do it. And since I've gotten these two dogs, they're both like puppies. And so I haven't had a chance to like, oh my God, they're crazy. Um, I love them so much though, but things are starting to calm down. So I really do feel the need to like exercise more or at all at this point, (laughs) finding different things. I love listening to music. I got a car recently. And so like driving to shows and just listening to music and kind of singing along is like my meditation, you know, just kind of like taking me out of it. But two things remaining. One, which I I didn't tell you about earlier, but some of the people that have been on guests wanted to do was to ask me a question or two. You're welcome to do that. And the second thing I wanted to cover before we wrap up was kind of any parting thoughts you might have. So we can go with it. If you have any questions for me, I'm happy to pretend to be the guest. Um, well, one thing that like interested me that you were speaking of before we started recording was that you said your 
an empathetic person and that you like learning about different people. Is there something within that that you feel like other people may not have? Or is there something like we talked about intentionality in terms of connecting with people? Is that something that you like practice daily? Does that come to you intuitively? Is there a way other people can like find that within themselves? It's probably like a lot of things that we have in ourselves. Some of it is probably innate and you can always probably learn some of it or do more of it or be better at it if you wish. So I think first and foremost, it's recognizing or realizing that having a sense of empathy is actually a good thing and one wants to increase that in themselves. We are empathetic, right? That's all of us are. It's just to what degree. In my case, the combination of curiosity and empathy, I think are, I've found them to be very valuable. For me, what drives me to want to enhance empathy in myself and even hopefully in others is that's a necessary ingredient in solving many of the problems we are facing as a society, as a species, even as a planet, because ultimately there are a lot of spiritual traditions, religious traditions out there that try to kind of get to the deeper meaning or deepest meaning of the universe and life and etc. To me, those seem fairly remote or abstract, or many of them do. Through empathy, I think we can really understand other humans here now and contribute to each other's well-being. And I think that's the opportunity that we have by enhancing our sense of empathy. And that comes, I think, through, sometimes it's a chicken and egg problem. I can't empathize with people I don't know. You know, I can't get to know people I don't empathize with. And so for me, it's probably a little bit like stand-up comedy for you. (laughs) To me, it's actually energizing to get to know people and to put myself in their shoes or to imagine being in their shoes. What are the aches and pains and joys will I feel if I take a walk in their shoes? That element is really critical. I think for a lot of us, probably for personal fulfillment and I think for solving many of the problems that we face as society or as multiples of societies. And this is where sometimes it's hard for me to necessarily meet with the peasants of parts of India or Africa or whatever, the displaced people in Syria. But if I can keep in mind that everybody's as three-dimensional as I am, maybe I can not minimize their issues, right? And, And actually appreciate that for them, their issues are just as big and crucial and critical and multifaceted and complex as any of my issues or all the issues that I face. I get joy out of driving more understanding between people. I also personally find it fun, perhaps like you find stand-up comedy fun. When I learned that, okay, this is how Pallavi thinks or about this problem or this particular thing, to me, that's actually a fun exercise as well. So it's not this calculated thing around like, okay, what is altruistic only? I think it happens to be a a good overlap. Curiosity is actually an interesting element because I think curiosity drives a lot of things. Curiosity can be valuable even if it's outside or not necessarily overlapping with empathy, but they kind of go together because if I'm not curious about other people and other things, it'll probably limit my ability to have empathy. I want to learn enough about other people and other things that they care about. Well, thank you. Thank you, Pallavi. So parting thoughts on any of the things we mentioned? Just do things that you love that don't harm people. That's all I got for you. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good way to close out. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.